yesteryear. Ballyhoo. Review. Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language. Oh, that that's that's enough. That's enough. That's enough. I'm taking this show over right now. This is this is not going to be going off in a formalized introductory phase. We got to just give the people what they want. Action and power right now. Oh god. He's doing Andy Griffith now. God that, damn it. That's right. I'm doing Andy Griffith now. I'm Lonesome Roads, motherfucker. Now listen up. The following podcast contains honest reality. I'm going to tell it like it is, and you people are going to sit down and listen to it right after I dig into this wonderful jingle for my beautiful sponsor, Valjigs. Valjigs, <laughs> what you doing to me? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the Picture Palace of the Past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, we are going to be socked in the face, courtesy of Ilya Kazan, and his power to move people with thoughts and ideas through the courtesy of Bud Schulberg's words and the face and voice of one Andy Griffith. It's a powerful, moving picture that shows prescience. It is, of course, a face in the crowd. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. Oh, lonesome roads. Look out for him. He's mean. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Andy Griffith, another sensational newcomer from Ilya Kazan, who brought you Marlon Brando and James Dean and Carol Baker. by millions, an idol of the people. Bye! Bye, Lucy! So long, Luther, you're right to me now. I'll be thinking of you, good people. Boy, I'm glad to shake that dumb. Look, don't, don't try to play the noble defender of the sanctity of marriage with me, Papa Man. No way you've been some of those nights when Betty was waiting up for you. You know, you hit me and it'll be all over the papers as much as the people love you tonight. You're can fired. Hit you. I'm not just an entertainer. I'm an influence, a wielder of opinion, a force. A force. Oh, if they ever heard the way that psycho really talks. They're mine. I own them. They think like I do. But they're even more stupid than I am. (laughs) So I gotta think for them. One of the greatest characterizations ever put on the screen in the whole history of motion pictures. Maybe I'm just a country boy. (laughs) But if the president tries to stop me, I'll flood the White House with millions of telegrams.
Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, in 1957, Elia Kazan, Bud Schulberg, and Andy Griffith put together a unique motion picture that forced a commentary on the state of television as it stood, the media figurization of politicians, and where it would lead the world. How has this film continued to affect us to this day? Well, we can talk about that with just you and me, but that would be fucking indulgent. So instead, I've brought with me a return guest. Uh, he is a filmmaker, a podcaster, a YouTube reviewer whose work on chewing the scenery can cover anything from Godzilla all the way down to the history of Korean cinema. Please welcome back to the show, Henry Jarvis. Hello, it's me. Henry. You, you, you gave the Ballyhoo a bit of a bombshell. Uh, it, um, this is a, <laughs> this is a movie that's almost kind of built for Ballyhoo to a certain respect in terms of how films teach lessons down the line. Um, but before that, let's get some courtesy banter out of the way. How have you been? <laughs> I've been okay. How have you been? <laughs> I've been fine. We've, we actually had the fortune of being able to see each other a lot this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're yeah both, it's been nice. We're both vaccinated in one form or another. Yeah. Vax, uh, wax, and ready to relax. <laughs> is that... Is that a? I didn't uh, come up with that. I'll be honest. But I was going to say, is that a meme that is that a meme that already exists? I want to make. I wanted to be sure because that should be a meme. If not, yeah. Vaxed, Max, and vaxed, waxed, and ready to relax. relax. Right on. If nobody's made a meme out of it, copyright Ballyhoo Productions, Uh (laughs) courtesy of Henry Jarvis Productions. Um, Yeah, no. um, You have been busy at work. Um, in fact, you, there was a point where you were just flat out like consumed by it. So, yeah. but your talk on Sancho the bailiff left the Ballyhoo listeners quite entertained. I'm glad, uh, and they loved the education that they got about Japanese cinema. Mm-hmm. So, and you started the trend that then got carried off into our Godzilla discussion with the Punk Rock Horror Podcast people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you decided to take it a step further by addressing American cinema at arguably its more most powerful. Uh, so we're talking about a face in the crowd today, which the film itself is loaded with discussion. The people behind it are even more loaded with discussion. Well, two of them are. One of them is loaded from the perspective of, holy shit, he made this movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, it's still an intriguing thing. Now, I'll tell you up front. This is the first time I had watched for the Ballyhoo. This is the first time I watched this movie uninterrupted. Prior to this, I had seen this movie in sections or in clips. And my recollection of it when I first saw any form of it was after being a fan of the Andy Griffith show and being like, well, this isn't Andy Griffith. He's, this is not what. Um, but how did you discover A Face in the Crowd? Uh, well, uh, when I was a sophomore freshman in film school, uh, I decided I wanted to watch all of uh, Kazan's filmography. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had seen uh, Gentleman's Agreement just by chance, uh, and I fell in love with that film. Yeah, uh, and so I decided to then expand to uh, the rest of his filmography, and so that's how I really found this film. Which is, I mean, in my opinion, I mean, maybe you would disagree, but in my opinion, this is one of the lesser talked about uh, Kazan films, and uh, mm-hmm. and I think it's uh, especially in recent years, it's definitely a film that is worth visiting. Yes, um, I would agree with that um, in terms of it being lesser discussed. Um, the, uh, the the to me the the when we talk about Kazan, there's a couple of things that come up. Number mm-hmm. one, his work with Tennessee Williams. Yeah. Number two, his commitment to the Stanislavski method. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Gentleman's Agreement is a film that is wonderful and is an important part of his legacy because he's already starting to address difficult issues, especially yeah. in a post-war world. Yeah. Um, but the other thing we talk about is what he did yeah. with Huac. Yeah. Um, now, tread carefully here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the reason that I ended up exposing myself to Kazan at all mm-hmm. had to do with Martin Scorsese talking about Ilya Kazan. Mm-hmm. And from there, watching Gentleman's Agreement, Streetcar Named Desire, going through my own little roster of his films. And I didn't know the full extent of the Huac thing. Mm-hmm. I kind of knew brief, brief broad strokes. Mm-hmm. When you brought this film to my attention, I decided to do more dig- deeper diving into Kazan. And one of the one of the best PBS American Masters I ever saw came out of this discovery was a a, a, a documentary about Kazan and Arthur Miller mm-hmm. and how their friendship was torn apart by that. Mm-hmm. Um, what's even more interesting is how it talks about On the Waterfront, mm-hmm. which is also co-written by Bud Schulberg, mm-hmm. who is the writer of today's film, yes. and how On the Waterfront started off as a completely different idea under the helm of Kazan and Miller. Mm-hmm. It was originally called The Hook. And the uh, the fact that both of them fall into the realm of having named names to mm-hmm. Huac yeah. puts them in a very intriguing position where they double down yeah. on their belief in what they did yeah. with On the Waterfront, yeah. which makes it a very complicated film to discuss. It's also why... It's on Criterion because yeah. it is an important film to talk yeah. about, um, or that and Criterion got the license. I don't yeah. fucking know. Armaged- it's one of those things where I mean, Armageddon's I'm, on there too. Yeah, so. yeah fair enough. <laughs> um, uh, with uh, on the waterfront specifically, it's very much a film where, regardless of opinion on the on the actual content of the film, it's a film that's very historically relevant. Yeah, uh, because it it kind of is the perfect film to analyze that movement in that era yeah and it's yeah i mean that's a completely that's a different topic that again we should probably try lightly on well yeah yeah and so like i'm not here to i don't think either of us are here to give an answer on yeah kazan's morality here because it doesn't pertain to a face in the crowd necessarily Mm -hmm. um what you should know is that there there remains a debate about kazan's legacy because of huac and i think especially Within the last four years, that legacy is even further put into question. Mm-hmm. The only person who won't budge is obviously Martin Scorsese, who mm-hmm. developed a friendship with him mm-hmm. and an admiration for him. Uh, and I admire Kazan's work a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm also aware of how to balance that. And we talk about problematic artists mm-hmm. um, and how we receive the information is based on a comfort level. Yeah. So with John Ford, not really comfortable. Yeah. It has to be like a really specific thing. <laughs> like, yeah. like how green was my valley or yeah. Grace like, of Wrath. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> the, even the quiet man. Even yeah, though in it's, a way. <laughs> even, even though it's got a person again that I can't fucking stand. Yeah. Um, but um yeah, the uh, uh so talking about Kazan and Schulberg for a face in the crowd to me extends into like, okay, they're past on the waterfront. They're looking for something else to bring attention to an important issue. Mm-hmm. Um, we should start off with a little bit of info on Kazan himself. Yes. Um, because he is um, the 
face of this whole operation. He's the face in this crowd. Mm-hmm. That was a bad joke. Uh-huh. Uh, he is he is born in the Fenner district of Istanbul. Uh, Kazan is of Cappadocian Greek heritage. He and his parents arrive in the States in July of 1913. Um, Kazan did a film uh, based on what, based on a book he wrote called America, America, which plays off as va- basically a very autobiographical interpretation of a family coming to America mm-hmm. in the vein of his. Yeah. Um, and the family comes there based off of the uh, based off of the support and insistence of his uncle um there is a scene in america america where the uncle kisses the ground of america and he had this to say regarding the scene i hesitated about it for a long time a lot of people who don't understand how desperate people can get advise me to cut it when i am accused of being excessive by the critics they're talking about moments like that but i wouldn't take it out for the world it actually happened. Believe me, if a Turk could get out of Turkey and come here, even now he would kiss the ground. To oppressed people, America is still a dream. Uh, and this this is an example of Kazan finding honesty where it's where it uh, is justified yeah. in his art. Again, yeah, yeah. we're not talking about his life. Yeah. Um, and uh, now. His father was a rug merchant, and he expected that path for Ilya. And Ilya was like, fuck you, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to sell rugs. Yeah. I want to do anything but be in business. So what does he do? He goes to, he goes to Williams College, starts working, in, working toward the drama department. He ends up attending Yale School of Drama for two years. All told, he had eight years of skill, honing his skills as an actor and learning technical direction for theater. He starts working with the group theater founded by Harold Clerman, Cheryl Crawford, and Lee Strasberg. And this is a group theater that would engage in elements of social commentary within their theater group. This is also around the time that he embraces the ideas of Marxism. Mm-hmm. Now, hold on, you anti-commie people. When we talk about people embracing Marxist ideals and socialist ideals, in the 1930s this is coming off of the failures of capitalism that ended up in the great depression america is lost it's trying to find an answer to what failed about the great american experiment at this time so people were indeed going to to different theologies Mm -hmm. and political ideas like this at the time now the group that Kazan was involved in wanted him to infiltrate the group theater and basically insert more of their ideals into the work. And Kazan refused and his association with the party dissolved pretty much there. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, he makes a name for himself in theater and, and, manages to do two movies where he acts under Anatole Litvak, mm-hmm. uh, the noted Anatole Litvak who made the film Confessions of a Nazi Spy. Um, and the two movies he made, one of them is a gangster classic called City for Conquest. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and he's opposite Jimmy Cagney. He's fine in it. It's a, it's a, it's a very, very much a supporting performance. Yeah. He's, it's not important. The important thing is, is that Jimmy Cagney doesn't want to be a boxer, but he is a boxer in order to make money for his kid brother so that he can write the greatest orchestra uh, symphony ever. Yeah. And it, 
Believe me, Henry, it'll break your fucking heart. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, uh-huh. no. <laughs> uh, and then the other one is the musical Blues in the Night. And then this is a, um, I found this from Kazan on directing, uh, is that the film begins with Ilya Kazan optioning an unproduced play by Edwin Gilbert called Hot Nocturne and retooled it for Broadway. He sold the rights to Warner Brothers, who gave the script to Robert Rawson, and then they initially retitle it New Orleans Blues. The studio then names it Blues in the Night. Kazan agrees to give up the screenwriting credit and appears as a clarinetist in the film. And he later said, after acting in this film, that he was convinced that he could direct better than Anatole Litvak. The fucking nerve on this mm, man. The fu- bold words. Bold words. To, like, you think you can direct better than the director of Confessions of a Nazi Spy? I guess we'll see. I let's guess we'll, let's see if it's in the proof's in the pudding here. Hold on. You know, we'll turn the page. <laughs> <laughs> Flip over to side B. <laughs> and then he did it. <laughs> Like the worst children's narrated film yeah, history yeah, book. Yeah. <laughs> Charles Corralt here. <laughs> and then Kazan went and into movies and he made a bunch of money. Then he named names. Wait, we're not talking about that, children. You don't need to know that right now. Um, yes, no. Um, he uh, he debuts in film with The Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Catapults him. It's already It, it already starts a trend. Gentleman's Agreement, he wins an Oscar for it. He already starts setting the stage for it. And then, whoack. And he refused to name names at first. And then he went back. With a lot of pressure put on him, he named names and then took out an ad in the trades defending his actions. Mm -hmm. Around that time, he meets Bud Schulberg. Bud Schulberg is a person who felt similar to Kazan in terms of how they handled that action. He is the son of B.P. Schulberg, who's a film producer and the head of production at Paramount Pictures. And among the films under B.P. Schulberg's tenure that he was supervising was Wings, Mm. the winner for the first Academy Award for Best Picture. His mother, Adeline Jaffe, founded the talent agency that would then be handled by Sam Jaffe. Mm. Um, And Jaffe is a person who was at any other point, an agent or a studio executive or a jack of all trades around yeah. the fucking industry. Um, he went to Dartmouth um, after attending the uh, Deerfield Academy. He serves in World War II, working in the OSS uh, with the John Ford Documentary Unit. So he's among the people that you can, um, whose work you can see in those films that are on Netflix now, courtesy of the, uh, five, five, five came back. Well, five came back. And then also the films themselves are oh, on it. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, that's yeah. If you, if you search it on Netflix, uh-huh. some of them will pop up. Interesting. Yeah. But if you make a list of them, yeah. like it, it even has the ones that are really fucking rough to watch. Oh, wow. Like, and not from a level of, uh, the gravity of the war, but like the portrayals of different races and stuff like yeah. that. It, it is, it could be tough. Yeah. But um, yes, he is also among the people reportedly who was there with the Ford unit. And I'm assuming the Stevens unit because he is among the people who were there to liberate the concentration camps. Yeah. There's a report that I found from the Washington Post that I found very, very interesting because of my fascination with this subject mm-hmm. is that one of the 
uh, parts of this assignment included arresting Lenny Riefenstahl. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was arrested at her chalet in Kitzbühel, Austria, uh, pretty much there to identify the faces of the war criminals in the film footage that they took. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Riefenstahl claimed she was not aware of the nature of the concentration camps. Schulberg said, she gave me the usual song and dance. She said, of course, you know, I'm really so misunderstood. I'm not political. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. He then gets into full writing. He ma- he writes the novel What Makes Sammy Run? Uh, and he utilizes a lot of the knowledge that his father uh, intimated to him being a big producer in Hollywood. Um, what Makes Sammy Run? Uh, focuses on Sammy Glick and his rise to power in a major Hollywood film studio. And uh, a member of the Communist Party at the time that he wrote this, Schulberg quit in protest after he was ordered by a party member to make changes to the novel. And he said, well, nope, not doing that. I'm leaving. Um, In 1950, he publishes The Disenchanted about a screenwriter who collaborates on a screenplay about a college winter festival with a famous novelist at the nadir of his career, as described here on Wikipedia. Uh, and he, um, the, it was adapted as a Broadway play in 1958. And then Schulberg wrote a series of short stories called faces in the crowd. Um, and among the stories in there is loads and roads. Now, Lonesome Roads as a character is sort of a hybrid between a couple of different folksy figures, not Mm -hmm. the least of which is Will Rogers, Mm -hmm. the noted satirist and humorist who really deserves his own episode in certain regards because he was in films. We still have a foundation, an institution uh, dedicated to finding cures for childhood diseases called the Will Rogers Institute, which you can donate a star of hope (laughs) <laughs> at, the, at Regal yeah. uh, to help fund. But he was known for his folksy demeanor and his very, very um, direct approach with the people. Like he made you feel like you could make an intimate you could trust with him. Apparently, B.P. Schulberg intimated to his son that Will Rogers would um, mock his audience when they weren't hearing him <laughs> and saying like, you know, they're not really, like they're fucking stupid. And um, which... Obviously, kind of, kind of shocking for me to hear too, because Will the Will Rogers mythos stuck long for me for the most part. Um, but I, but I also hadn't dug as deep into Will Rogers as I'd like to. This makes me want to, especially given the movie we get. Another one is Ar- Arthur Godfrey, or as I call him, Ukulele Man. Now, Arthur Godfrey was a personality in radio and television. He had a bit of a temper with his performers. Uh, one of the singers on his show, um, he basically bashed him by telling him his career was done and that he would be on his own show, like basically just being an asshole. Yeah. On the air. Yeah. Live. Um, he also was known for not reading his sponsor's advertisements correctly and just going off on whatever tear he wanted to. Those are elements that find themselves placed into the Lonesome Roads character. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we've said, prior to A Face in the Crowd 
in the screenplay form that it exists, um, he make he writes the script for On the Waterfront. He also has a film um, uh, based on one of his books, The Harder They Fall, with Humphrey Bogart. It's a Mark Robson film. Mark Robson was one of the last people to be directing for Val Luton uh, before Val Luton's tenure at RKO ended. So now we find ourselves at a face in the crowd. Um, I want to ask a question before we dump into the production info on this, Henry. Mm. You've watched the film more than I have uh, in its entirety. Mm-hmm. How do you see this as a person with no attachment to the sentimentality of old Hollywood, yeah. looking at the power of what cinema could be and whatnot? You're watching this as just a, a young man watching a movie here. Yeah. What What was? Can you relay your first reaction to watching this movie? Yeah, uh, like I said, that was around uh, probably 2016, 2017 mm-hmm. is, uh, when I when I watched it for the first time. Uh, now, there are, obviously, we'll get into kind of how this film has gotten more publicity recent in recent years due to it being kind of almost credited as being a like prophetic kind of film about the modern political landscape. Yeah. Uh, so I definitely noticed that when I first watched it. Um, now I don't. I, I will also be uh, blunt, and I'll say that. Uh, my knowledge of the blacklist scenario and all these different kinds of things is far more limited. Uh, I, right. I, I wish I knew a lot more, mm-hmm. uh, but it is far far more limited. And so I don't view... Stay tuned to our show. It's going to come up. It'll come up. <laughs> um, and I don't like I, Watching it then, it was... I think it struck me more and I was so... I was so in awe of how, how relevant it still is the first time. Mm-hmm. And I think when I I rewatched it this morning in preparation for the show, and I think watching it this time was less shock and more. It felt almost disturbing in a way watching the film. It's a it horror felt, movie. Yeah, exactly. And like <laughs> as it plays out, I think the I think the cinematography is so well done in showing the darkness that kind of yeah. comes with these people oh, and yeah. that kind of thing, and the lack of control of the chaos that ends up like in golfing the film and the story which the cinematography by the way let's bring them up right now Gane Rescher and Harry Stradling this this film is bleak as shit yeah 1958 Warner Brothers needing money yeah because <laughs> television uh it's amazing the movie got made with the veracity and force and the bleakness it has yeah um so this film was developed under the working title of the Arkansas Traveler, which is, mm-hmm. you know, the moniker yeah. Rhodes. Hearing you talk about this and thinking about what television was back then, when I sat down and watched it uninterrupted, most of the clips that I had seen or the portions of the film that I'd seen, whether it was on television or if I was catching it, I had pretty much seen. Mm-hmm. There were intimate moments in between that I don't think I'd ever seen before. Yeah. With Lonesome Roads being empathetic. Mm-hmm. Or like or you could have empathy toward him. Mm-hmm. But that becomes few and far between the more this movie moves and goes on. Mm-hmm. It's a very haunting performance. It's a performance that comes out of nowhere realistically when you think of (laughs) 
Andy Griffith. Yeah. The fuck. Yeah. Now, I had known about his this performance in this because this is one of two films mm-hmm. that introduces him to the public. This is the less popular one. Spoiler alert for the end. Yeah. This movie was not a hit. Yeah. Um, the other one, though, No Time for Sergeants. This <laughs> 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 is based on a play, uh, and <laughs> it started off initially uh, as a one-hour teleplay, uh, and it then goes into a Broadway version of the same name in 1955. Uh he gets a nomination for Distinguished Supporting or Featured Dramatic Actor at the Tony Awards, losing to Ed Begley Sr. Uh, and um, uh, he then ends up being in the film version of it in No Time for Sergeants in 1958. And Andy Griffith is a figure in pop culture that has such a stereotype attached to him. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about the origin of Andy Griffith? Mm-hmm. Born in North Carolina, the only child of Carl Carl Lee Griffith and his wife, Geneva. Uh, he cultivates an interest in the arts. He gets into drama very early on. Um, now, he attends the University of North Carolina and uh, he graduates with a bachelor's uh, bachelor of music degree in 1949, but he starts moving towards being a Moravarian preacher, uh, and then changes his major to music as part of the school's Carolina Playmakers. Mm. At the UNC, he's the president of the UC, UNC chapter of Phi Mu Alpha Sinifor. Sinfonia. I didn't go to a frat, guys. I don't yeah, know how to fucking pronounce these yeah, names. Yeah, me neither. Um, and he starts playing. It's it's a it's a fraternity for men in music. It's the oldest one in America. Oh, interesting. And he plays roles in operettas, such as The Chimes of Normandy, The Gondoliers by Gilbert and Sullivan, The Mikado, and the HMS Pinafore. And after graduation, he starts teaching music and drama for... Uh, a scattered number of years at the Goldsboro High School in Goldsboro, North Carolina. And anytime I say the name Goldsboro, North Carolina, I immediately think of a tobacco auctioneer going, <laughs> sold American. And that's a Lucky Strike commercial right there for you guys. Um, see, I'll throw in commercials every so often because I think that's what Lonesome Roads would want. Even this though I don't episode give... is sponsored by... <laughs> Friends. <laughs> <laughs> Why not try sympathy soothing syrup? <laughs> sympathy spelled backwards is Yatepamis. <laughs> um, no, he starts going off as a comedian, though, because he delivers, starts delivering these long stories as a monologist. And one of the big ones is what it was was football, where he plays a naive country boy preacher trying to figure out what's going on in a football game. If you have the Criterion edi- um, edition of A Face in the Crowd, you can hear sections of this. It is really funny. <laughs> it is actually very, very funny. Um, it becomes a single in 1953 on Colonial Records. Um, and as I said, around this time, he gets involved in No Time for Sergeants. And in between No Time for Sergeants and this debut as a monologist, he finds himself in front of Kazan. Uh, and 
there's a wonderful doc about on the Criterion 2 about how this role affected uh, Griffith. <laughs> um, and I recommend people check it out because it's like the biggest deviation for him and it did affect him uh, in, in many ways in terms of performing it on screen. Um, I think that when you watch Griffith do it, it means more today than it did when it was released. It means so much more because of what Griffith stood as, mm-hmm. as one of the greatest television dads ever. Yeah. Um, to watch him do this unhinged, horrible monster of a person mm-hmm. is jaw dropping. And I'm glad that I watched it in full finally and not just watching chunks of him acting like the asshole that he is. Like the one scene that I remember the most because it was um, played back in my head was uh, when um, the sound is turned on and he just keeps saying like, good night, you losers. Good night, mm-hmm. you fucking weirdos. <laughs> yeah. That that to me was like watching it in full unfold and what he had become up to this point is astounding to watch it unfold in full. And also the the arc of Marsha mm-hmm. in yeah. the film. Um, and I'll make an argument for one of the cast members that we'll talk about in terms of what his arc represents, yeah. because I find it, I find one of the characters in this film, he's very important by the very end, especially to be a complex figure mm-hmm. in how you receive this film today. Um, Kazan assembles the rest of the cast, which include Patricia Neal uh, and Lee Remerick, Lois Nettleton and Charles Irving all make their film debuts in this movie along with Griffith. Mm-hmm. This is Griffith's first movie. Mm-hmm. No time for sergeants because afterwards. It's amazing that Griffith starts his career like this and then because of what his reputation was prior with No Time for Sergeants to then basically spin that back into what Andy Griffith show has become. Mm-hmm. Now, he is able to deviate from that down the line. But mm-hmm. if we're talking about the immediacy of it, it's interesting that this powerful of a performance mm-hmm. 180s itself completely for his yeah. career. It's it's That's what's weird about it. It's not weird watching Andy Griffith play this role, having seen Andy Griffith's show. It's weird watching him do this role as his first big breakout and then doing Andy Griffith's show. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> like, I... <laughs> I had this image in my head of Ronnie Howard mm-hmm. <laughs> being told like, okay, you're going to audition for this television show uh, where Andy Griffith is your father. Now here's a face in the crowd to show you uh, the dad you'll be dealing with. And just Ronnie Howard screaming in his fucking chair. Yeah. Ah! Yeah. <laughs> I don't want him to be my dad. I don't want him to be my dad. And then Rance Howard goes like, now son, it's all pretend. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, Griffith would note that he would work gradually up to the more intense moments and he would need to uh, get that kind of spontaneity when shooting those scenes for Kazan. And he would have, he would ask to have a few discarded chairs available to destroy in order to wake up his rage before filming. Again, this performance affected him. Yeah. He understood because again, 
We're talking about a very intelligent man, and he's not a he's not a Mary, Mayberry Bumpkin. This is an intelligent actor who understands. Oh shit! I have to get to a place. And if somebody like Kazan is directing him, who believes in the Stanislavski method, you get involved in your character like that. Mm-hmm. He's going to not only listen, he's going to participate in its fullest possible intent. Yeah. That documentary on the Criterion talks about how he was sort of a wreck. Yeah. <laughs> by the end of it. Yeah. And it's. It's heartbreaking because I'm just like, how dare Kazan do that to America's favorite yeah. dad? Yeah. But then I'm just like, oh, but he wasn't the dad yet. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's fine. He was He was still this guy. It's fine. Like, Andy, what are you doing throwing that chair around? I know you need to get in character, but still. <laughs> <laughs> I would love Barney Fife watch, oh, yeah. watching a face in the crowd. Yeah. Oh, no, Andy, don't do that. No, no, no. Don't call them idiots on the air. <laughs> oh, yeah. What the hell are you doing, Andy? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the filming takes place in New York for the most of the interiors at the Biograph Studios in the Bronx. And they shot a little bit in Memphis and in Pickett, Arkansas, where uh, where we get the beginning of our story. Um, the big location shoot was in Poplar Bluff, Missouri, which stands in for Pickett in the fair and the baton twirling scene that I alluded to with the fact that Lonesome Rhodes is a creepy asshole. Mm-hmm. Um, 5,000 extras fed and paid a dollar hourly for a mid August day just to sit out there in the sun and 60 baton twirlers musicians from six different high school bands rounded up to tell the story of this incredible monster, <laughs> the magic of movies. I love it. Um, and the, I think it's important that we, let's just jump into the plot of this film right now. Yeah. We're, we've, we've talked enough about the intent of this film. Um, let's get off the bat directed by Elia Kazan, produced by Elia Kazan, screenplay by, Bud Schulberg, based on Your Arkansas Traveler by Bud Schulberg, starring Andy Griffith, Patricia Neal, Anthony Fricosia, Lee Remrick, and of course, the one and only Walter Matthau. Mm-hmm. That's right, idiots. I'm on your fucking show. <laughs> <laughs> Get over here. <laughs> I'm going to tell you the story of a face in the crowd. First of all, it doesn't start with a K, this crowd, so it's not funny. <laughs> Did everybody watch the Sunshine Boys? Words with a K are funny in it. <laughs> Walter Matthau, I love his performance in this movie. He is my favorite character. He is also the most complex character in this film mm-hmm. to a modern lens to my eyes. Mm-hmm. But yes, Walter Matthau making his Ballyhoo debut. I thought it would be on charade with Ryan, but... Uh-huh. Th- I like to sweep in and uh, <laughs> steal things from Ryan, as you know. <laughs> Life doesn't work according to your plan, Zach. Stop it. <laughs> you sound like Felix, and it really pisses me off. <laughs> <laughs> and also tell him to stop cleaning up my damn apartment. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. Uh, music by Tom Glazer. Cinematography, as we said before, by Gain Rusher and Harry, Sta- Harry Stradling. Edited by Gene Milford, which the editing in this film is fucking important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and released by Warner Brothers on May 28th, 1957. We open up in Pickett, Arkansas. And it's a nice, quiet southern town. Yeah. Everybody's hanging around, you know, 
playing checkers in the, yeah. in the in the in the park. Everybody's having a fine time and whatnot. And we get Marsha Jeffries, uh, played by Patricia Neal, who's looking for people to interview mm-hmm. because she's an aspiring podcaster. I mean, radio announcer. No. Yeah, same thing. Now, this is this is not. <laughs> Welcome to welcome to a face in the crowd podcast sponsored by mymattress.com. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I don't think that sounds the same as the way she gives it on, in, in, on the air and whatnot. She just doesn't have the charisma that you have. And so But but you know what's funny? Marsha's not really a personality. She's much more of a producer figure. Yeah. She's doing so. this mainly for her father's yeah. benefit. Yeah, yeah, her yeah. father who's like I don't I'm I'm fully convinced that the father has no like gumption to work a day in his life oh, beyond yeah. his means. Like yeah, yeah. he is he is a straight up slob. She goes to the local jail where she's putting up the mic to a bunch of other people. There is a scene with an African American in the jail and they make reference to this directly. Mm-hmm. Um it's not it's not offensive, really. It's a weirdly, it's a weirdly neutral inclusion into the it's, film where it, it's not offensive necessarily, but it's not necessarily not offensive. Yeah, exactly. So it's 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 like, one of those things where it doesn't add anything really. It just exists to exist, and you know. Exactly. Yeah. It's 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 there. It, it technically lends some authenticity to the South, mm-hmm. and Kazan's probably looking at it through a progressive lens, but it's progressive for his time, not yeah. for us. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And. Amongst the people in this fucking jail is the loudest, sweatiest, yep. <laughs> most unbearable human being alive. Mm-hmm. Lonesome Roads. We get Andy Griffith. He has a very pronounced fucking. It's also established in at least the first half of this movie, if he is not on screen, his character is most likely asleep. Because yeah. every, every scene with him starts with him being asleep and being woken up by someone. That's true. Yeah, that, that is very, very true. It's either And it's either drunk or yeah. exacerbated by his fame. Yeah. Like one of the two. I think it's honestly a comb- combination a combo, of both. Yeah. yeah, it's just like, listen, I'm drunk on fame, but I'm also drunk on whiskey. Mm-hmm. These two type of drunks. These two type of drunks, Henry. Those were just drunk on booze, and those were drunk on booze and fame. Oh, there we go. Yeah. See, that's why I'm a monster as opposed to a alcoholic that could feasibly be cured yeah. with love and compassion. Uh-huh. <laughs> but no, I've gone off the deep end. Well, not yet. I'm still in prison. I'm just kind of wanting to get out. So I here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a deal with <laughs> with the sheriff of this jail. I'm going to make a deal with him that if I sing a song for this lovely lady in her radio show, that he'll let me out the next day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is a weird deal to make in, to make with jail officials and a prisoner in there yeah he he sings a song about basically about how i'm going to get out of jail tomorrow Mm -hmm. um but it also is kind of just like it sets up the character of lonesome roads as a person who speaks his mind Mm -hmm. speaks to his experience yeah speaks to to his perception of the world Mm -hmm. and as a character lonesome roads starts off with harmless intention for the most part yeah like it at its raw core it starts off as a monologist not unlike what griffith was yeah and a humorist not unlike will rogers was the intent for what his personality 
becomes with the radio show stems into this idea of just a folksy guy who has been asked to tell his side of what he thinks of the world. Yeah. And the movie does a good job at the beginning of disarming you into completely hating or reviling at Rhodes, to my opinion. Yeah. There is a charm about him. But I want to be careful about how I address that because there's a figure that you can allude to with Lonesome Roads in modern history that I have no sympathy for whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But the difference between this figure and Lonesome Roads is that because it's fashioned as a script, Lonesome Roads doesn't start out as a complete monster. He becomes a monster by the end. It really feels like this this film really shows a progression of Lonesome uh, Lonesome Roads. As he becomes, because it's, I mean, in the beginning of the film when he's uh, interviewed and he, it really is like more so. You know, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna talk. You want someone to talk? I will talk, and that kind of yeah. Thing. He's he's and it evolves from there. And well, he at first. I'll, wait, I want to be clear though. He at first doesn't want to do it. He wants right. to just you're go right. fuck off. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I'm like, okay, I can kind of get on his side. Yeah, he doesn't see anything in this right yeah. away. It, he doesn't. He's not an opportunist right away. Yeah, yeah. He becomes one later. Yeah. This one, he's like actually like he gets out of jail. He's going off with his friend. And Marsha and her father have to pull off to the side of the road, like catch up with him and be like, come on over and talk on the radio for a day. If you don't like it, whatever, you don't have to stay. Yeah. And he's like, and they even offer to buy him a ticket to Florida. Yeah. <laughs> like to be like, if you don't like it, go on to Florida. And yeah. He's like, well, <laughs> I guess I, <laughs> yeah. I guess I can, <laughs> that's not going away guys. Cause it's all over this movie. And mm-hmm. if I had to sit with it, so do you, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great character. Trait. Oh, yeah, I love the great... I love the laugh. It's, it's just iconic. Oh yeah, just, yeah. It's like and it's like it's something that you could see the Andy Griffith character doing if he really got excited, but not for this reason. Yeah, like it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so they get him his own radio program, and he's mainly just singing songs and talking folksy over the air. Yeah, he starts getting honest about what women go through in the home and how men don't appreciate women. And your first thought might be, is Lonesome Roads progressive? Yeah. Like, and it's like, huh. <laughs> like, I mean, similar to like what we said earlier, where it was like, for the time, this is kind of a progressive statement. Yeah, like, it's very, very strange. And it also is intercut. Like Kazan and Schulberg are really good with these moments here where they intercut Real people reacting. Yeah, like, like reacting to... Yeah, the, like they, you have like a couple sitting at the table. The wife's clearly listening to it, and the husband is too. And the husband goes like, well, I'm off to work, dear. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like, or you have like the woman uh, cleaning the stove yeah. uh, and kind of reacting like, well, how would he know that? And like that kind of thing. <laughs> right. Is he a wizard? <laughs> is lonesome... That's right. A, a wizard is never late. He <laughs> arrives precisely when he means to. On your radio. <laughs> um, and the popularity grows for Lonesome Roads to the point of him getting sent a shit ton of pies. Like, now that's that's a moment where I'm like, I could see Andy Griffith on the Andy Griffith show eating a bunch of pies. Yeah. I could totally see that. Um, but uh, it, it evolves even further because the station, like w- one of my favorite scenes in terms of a comedy moment in this movie is he's doing a show from 
the station owner's house where there's a big pool in the backyard. And he's like, yeah, I'm sure my boss would not mind if all the children in the neighborhood decided to take a swim in his pool. (laughs) (laughs) And you see all the kids coming up and it's this like, it's like this, it's like this represent Kazan's really good at representing what live radio would have been like what, what radio was for people outside of the scripted format. Yeah. What news or, those kind of like reality environments would have been. And it is kind of intriguing to watch him stage it. Yeah. It's not like something amazing visually, yeah. but it's like unique to watch it because he's representing something that's from the not too distant past. Yeah. Um, and Rhodes gets a call to be on Memphis television. Mm-hmm. And, he makes a deal of he makes a deal that seems out of pure integrity of like okay i'll try it out for a couple of weeks see how you guys like me if you don't like me well i'll call it quits i'll come back here no harm done mm-hmm. if you like me thousand dollars a week i think is the uh, i think is the the amount yeah i think like, yeah i think pretty sure that's what it was like one thousand like fifteen hundred something like around that. around that length yeah an insane amount of money yeah, is yeah. what we're talking about like an yeah. insane amount of money for a person who has no entertainment experience yeah. no show business experience especially at that time yeah exactly it's amateur hour yeah it, it's amateur hour with Arthur godfrey it, you want to see my talent i'm i'm a talent talent's got Arthur godfrey and i go around and i search for people who have talent and yeah. then i make fun of them on the air because i don't give a fuck about human decency yeah. also i love ukuleles yeah um if you didn't think you were going to hear an Arthur Godfrey impression on this show, guess again, folks. <laughs> I I should send you some Arthur Godfrey because Ooh, he is be like nice. he is dull as dirt. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> I don't like. Well, him. you don't don't rush to send them then. <laughs> no, <laughs> well, no, but I I would want to like separate it out with clips because he like yeah. there's one that he did was was funny with Bob Hope, but I think it's because he was given material by Bob Hope's writers yeah. and not his own um anyway he gets onto the television show that the television station it's a small level television station it's nothing massive yet we're at the low level end of television local television too he gets a sponsor which is a mattress company Mm -hmm. they outfit him in overtly folksy attire yeah and they put a piece of straw in his mouth Mm -hmm. (laughs) My favorite acting moment from Griffith that has nothing to do with him being a monster is him fiddling around with it. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to figure out why it's How, in his mouth. Like, yeah. Like, like, well, if they want me to be folksy, like, let me show it on like that. Yeah. No. And then at one point, he's just like, you know what? Fuck it. Yeah. Like- <laughs> and they put him on the air and he starts kind of basically doing his ad lib thing. Now, Lonesome Roads ad libs. Yeah. He ad-libs. He says what's on his mind. And it leads into a very charitable act (laughs) where he ran into a young African-American woman whose house had been destroyed. And she needs a new house. And he gets onto the mic and he goes like, all right, now I want each and every one of you to chip in with what you can spare, but not too much because you need some for yourself. So he's a pragmatist. Yeah. (laughs) I appreciate that only in the regard of like, it's better than just saying like, give what you can. He's just like, no, no, no. I'll break it down for you for reals. (laughs) You got to keep some stuff for yourself. Yeah. Because you've got to like live in order to send the money. Let's be honest. You have some else. So put that away. (laughs) Do you, do you really need, do you really need 
to buy another subscription to Netflix when you like when you know that people are just going to steal your password anyway. J- just be honest, you're not going to watch that DVD. You're not <laughs> going to return it, so you don't need the DVD plan. Let's be honest, your family wasn't interested in watching The Call of the Wild anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it. Really cool CGI dog. Harrison Ford, hey, he's grumpy, but that's his shtick these days. (laughs) And let's be honest, none of you wanted to watch Hillbilly Elegy on Netflix anyway, so why even pay for Netflix? Just remove that subscription entirely. The only thing that's worth it on there is The Irishman, and I could get you that copy on Criterion, so you don't have to worry about streaming shit. (laughs) Anyway, this is Lonesome Roads for Amazon Prime. Um, anyway, he gets people to donate to the charity and it's a huge success. I love the visualization of it in the form of a wheelbarrow full of fucking silver dollars. That's something you won't see. You see a counter now. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's a image out of television. Mm-hmm. Like that's an image out of selling a charity and oh, that yeah. kind of nature. Yeah, it's yeah. like really, it's not like it, it's. It's monstrous in retrospect to to understand how some of these charity shows functioned from a visual and entertainment standpoint. Yeah. But to look at it, it's just like, man, that's an audacity. Like that, that oh, it's yeah. clear showmanship. Like that's yeah. pure and utter and simple. And amidst his time at this low level manifestation, he has asked to do an ad for this mattress company. And it goes wrong (laughs) because he doesn't know how to sell the mattress based on the script that they've given him. Now, the script that he's given is bullshit. Let's be frank. I don't necessarily admire the unprofessionalism of Rhodes, but the script the sponsor gave him is Posturing bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Now, I had something to bring to your attention in terms of contextually how this works uh-huh. at, and in the era leading up to a face in the crowd. Yeah. Um, obviously, we talked about Arthur Godfrey. Mm-hmm. I am able to make a Jack Benny connection to this, but it's not through his brilliance as a comedian. It has to do with advertising at this time. When you were on the radio, your sponsor is paying you the money to sell the product up until a certain point, an advertiser wasn't wanting you to make fun of the product and have fun with it in order to encourage people to buy it. Yeah. It's kind of like a reverse psychology sell. Mm-hmm. I know there's an actual term for it. I just don't remember it off the top of my head. I don't remember it. Either, so you're fine. But so. It's fine. But you know what I'm talking about? I know like, you're you, you self referential the theory of it. Yeah. yeah the theory of it. Like going like, you know, like Geico can save you more insurance yeah, than yeah. an eagle on a hawk, and then you see an eagle on a hawk, and then you're like Geico. Like, yeah, yeah. Because well, I don't want to go hawk now. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. Uh, so up until a certain point, advertisers just—it's a straight commercial. Jack innovated, technically first by breaking the rule, where he would uh, make fun of Canada Dry on the air as his first sponsor, and Canada Dry got pissed about that. Did the same thing with the other sponsors. Finally, he gets Jello, which at the time was a brand of gelatin that was in danger of going out of business. Jack saved the company with his commercials that kind of twisted and made fun of it. The advertising agency Young and Rubicam saw this and encouraged Jello. No, don't, don't, don't fire him. He's doing the look at your look at the sales chart. Look, look at the pretty sales chart. Look at yeah. look at all the money. <laughs> like, yeah, Jello flew off the shelves and. 
Jack eventually is transitioned over to Grape Nuts Flakes through um, a couple of different um, fights. He then goes over to the American Tobacco Company, which is run by George Washington Hill. George Washington Hill is a fan of the hard sell. He does not believe in the self-referential commercials. Jack found a compromise where Jack would do the joke commercial in the middle, but you do a hard sell on either end. So at the beginning of the Jack Benny program, you have the hard sell. You do the show. You do a fun commercial with Don Wilson and or the Sportsman Quartet, depending on what year you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And then you have the hard sell at the end, which usually featured that tobacco auctioneer that I made fun of earlier in the show. Yeah. Other shows operated in some form or fashion where they would make fun of the product, whatever the case may be. What's interesting is, is that this thing here is basically telling the entire story of that in one scene about how advertising and commercials had changed within the span of close to three decades. So there's a commentary in it about that trend changing and how commercials would be going forward with a little bit more of a self-referential attitude that wasn't afraid to poke fun at the product and have fun with it. Yeah, uh, It's interesting to watch that and the reaction of the mattress head because he's like, yeah, like fire him. (laughs) Yeah. And Rhodes is given a chance to redeem himself by reading the script and he throws it away. (laughs) Fuck you and your lumpy mattress. And he, they basically can him, but Rhodes fans react in fucking fury. Yeah. They protest outside of his fucking office. Mm-hmm. And it becomes kind of irrelevant because Rhodes gets an offer. Well, he gets the agent, I believe. It's he gets the agent at that yes. point. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He gets the agent who then points him towards uh oh, he's a, he's he's one of the members of the mattress company. Yeah. He's a, it's Joey De Palma, uh played by An- Anthony Fracosia. Uh he gets the deal together for a TV show in New York City. The sponsor is What are the ingredients of this fucking drug? Yeah. (laughs) Speed, sugar, caffeine. There's a there's a pie chart. Yeah. (laughs) He they bring him in and Vitajex is being like basically financially backed by this general. um, Who's investing all of his money. This astute general who's like investing all of his money in this company. They bring Lonesome Rhodes in, and they're expecting the personality to just do what they ask him to do in selling the product, which Vitajex is not selling well because they don't know what to do. (laughs) They've tried selling this in every legitimate form possible. Lonesome Rhodes takes a look at it, tries the product, and he believes in the product because, Henry, it doesn't say it out loud, but this is the part where Lonesome Roads becomes addicted to speed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In a way. Yeah. Because <laughs> you can't tell me he's not popping Vitajex every fucking minute that he's not on screen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he takes the drug and he feels good instantly, which made me wonder, is Vitajex a, a fast dissolve? Yeah. Like, is it like a, like, um, like the Advil liquid gel? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's just like, oh my God, <laughs> this is beautiful. Woo wee. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm going to come up with a song right now. Vitajix, what you doing to me? Hmm. And then we get this montage that is all 
credit due to Gene Milford. We yeah. get a montage of commercialism in action. Yeah. Starting off with Lonesome Rhodes doing his homespun Vita Jacks. Uh-huh. Not too dissimilar from what he did on the radio show. And then all of a sudden to our lovely chorus of gals who will be playing in the background going, Vada Jacks, what you doing to me? We see the variations of commercials of television at this time as it stood. It's scary how little of it has changed. Um, apart from, I would say modern television commercials are less staged. Less staged. Not unstaged, just less staged. Because there is something about commercials from 50s television that are very much like, hi, I'm... I'm trying to think of like a good like example here. Like, hi, I'm Arnold Palmer. Yeah. And when I'm not golfing, I smoke Lucky Strike cigarettes because that's an actual commercial. That yeah, yeah, yeah. It's weird. <laughs> um, and uh, But now we try to tell a narrative or a story. Yeah. On our commercials. Like it's it's become its own form of filmmaking. Yeah, it's all yet like a tiny short film with every product now. And yeah. So. Now, this scene to me is one of the most innovative things you'll ever see out of filmmaking in the 50s. Yeah. I think it's more innovative than half the technical acumen. Yeah. That I mean, they put up. Because how many times in a modern movie today do we see energetic editing like this? Oh, yeah. It's very... Not of its era. <laughs> I was going to throw out a uh, comparison to you. Mm. Tell me if this is uh, un- unfair. It may actually make Vice better for me because I was thinking yeah. of Vice and The Big Short, Adam McKay's work. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of kinetic energy, which not all of it I'm a fan of, mm-hmm. but that energy is in this particular moment as a pointed form of social commentary. Oh, yeah. Whether it's on the nose or subtle, whatever the case may be, it's there. Um, you also see that form of kineticism being adapted into films that don't have a social commentary agenda, like Edgar yeah. Wright. Edgar oh, yeah. Wright does this kind of like spit spot editing all yeah. over the place and does it so efficiently and tight. Milford is using montage, which... Hitchcock. I I loved a face in the crowd. It was fucking wonderful. That southern gentleman was scary fucking shit. Yeah. Um, that montage editing designed to show you the insanity and the madness of the Rhodes character. What I wondered, sitting in my chair, was how does an audience of the era receive this film? I obviously we know. The reception, again, we already kind of spoiled that up front. I'm wondering what's going on inside the mind of a person watching this and wondering how many of them realize that this movie is telling them that they're being, like, hogwashed on a constant basis with television. Mm -hmm. Because there's a part of this film that is a pointed social commentary designed to make... um, uh, make a statement about where showbiz is ending up, but also where politics is ending up. It's also a movie made by a movie studio who is fighting the thing that they are pointing commentary at. Yeah. It's very, very cool yeah. to watch that unfold. It's also very obvious. <laughs> yeah. This is at a time where Jack Warner's like, oh, I hate television. What's this? A face in the crowd? Good. Fuck them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and. I wanted to know, do you think 
do you think people were as in tune to it as we might be today? Um, like some, like not not a majority, obviously, but like yeah. I mean, I think like I I mean, there's always gonna be people that understand it and that kind of thing and understand what the intent is and that idea. I do know the historical context of the film being that it was not super well received when it came out. Yeah, and so I am I'm inclined to think that. A lot of people who did see it did not fully understand the grasp of what it was trying to say. But so I am wondering in that regard, how are they? Like, are they? I would love to know. Like, I would love to read audience cards from this movie. Oh yeah, and go. wonder like, are they? Would their comments trend towards what was this? What did we just watch? Why is this guy so mean? Yeah, something like like what like I would. I, that's like that. That's a new goal for me in my life is to read audience card reactions from this film. Yeah. Um, but it works. Yeah. Because Vitajex starts selling like fucking candy. Yeah. <laughs> um, at, like it is. Uh, hotcakes is a better yeah. hotcakes, and he uh, obtains even more power. He has a writer in the writers' room at this point. Um, that had started with him in the Memphis television studio um, by the name of Mel Miller. Yeah. Played by Walter Matthau. Yeah. And at this point in his journey, he's also had the guidance of Marsha. Marsha has lifted him out of this jail cell in Arkansas and put him on the national spotlight. Yeah. Here's where the film, to me, starts treading into the most obvious pointed commentary of a modern context because the rest of the film really becomes watching Lonesome Road spiral. Yeah. Like really fucking spiral. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's a couple of instances that point to this, one being the fact that Lonesome Roads wants to get married to Marsha. Mm-hmm. Now, their relationship to me always seemed to be trending that way. Always seems to be trending that way at that time. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is how it plays out yeah. after the fact, because this is something that I didn't think I'd ever see out of a 50s movie uh, unfolding the way it does, because she agrees to marry him, mm-hmm. but he's got to get... A divorce because she then finds out upon feeling that she's going to get married that Lonesome Rhodes had another wife. Mm-hmm. And here's where we start to see Lonesome Rhodes's wanderer of Arkansas motif fall apart to him being just another layabout jerk. Yeah. Who. His his ex wife fully describes him as a person who's just gonna love her and leave him, mm-hmm. love her and leave her, and and Lonesome Rhodes goes like, nah, 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 darling, relax, relax, relax. Yes, that that gal, I married her, and she's like, whatever. But listen, I can get to Mexico, get myself a divorce, a quick divorce, super quick, and we could be married, easy peasy, right? And. There's actually a scene within this where Marsha, like within that whole spiel of time where Marsha goes into the writer's studio and we see Mel writing out the program for him. Mm-hmm. And you then see how he doesn't respect the material. Yeah. Which I to me is 
it is interesting in the regards of like watching like these people hard at work like pulling out these folksy colloquialisms mm-hmm. to manufacture something. Oh yeah. And it never sits right with Mel anyway. Mm-hmm. Like he does it because it's a job. He's more educated. He knows that this is wrong. Mm-hmm. And he's still doing it. Yeah. Up to a point. Yeah. Before Lonesome Roads can go down to Mexico, he has to judge a contest, a baton twirling contest mm-hmm. in Pigot. He comes back and it is this grand reception. It's the culmination of the Lonesome Roads phenomenon, a phenomenon that has produced hit records, millions of viewers on television, sponsorship, influence, everything. People are drawn into this folksy bumpkin and it culminates in this homecoming ceremony where lonesome roads eyes a young baton twirling contestant in the audience and makes goo goo eyes at her to which point his old boss from the radio studio says she's 17 mm-hmm. douche chill uh, yeah <laughs> because he judges the baton twirling contest and Betty Lou Fleckham, uh-huh. what a name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, the Fleckham family decided to name their daughter Betty Lou. Henry, so. Henry, isn't your mother named? I mean, I'm famously Henry Fleckham by Fle- birth. Fleckham, and, yeah, uh, you're Fleckham, yeah. Yeah, I'm famously Henry Fleckham by birth. You and, changed uh, it to Jarvis because you were such a fan of the Friday the 13th. Well, movies. of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ryan said, "You change your name, or you can't be a part of the podcast." Well, yeah, I can't have a co-host named. It was a, it was a weird hazing thing when I started being on the podcast, but I I, I did it. So, just like Lonesome Rose, you wanted to be in, wanted to have attention any way you could well, possibly. Of course, get it. yeah. Um. Yes, she wins the contest. Betty Lou wins the contest. She's a huge fan, and Lonesome Rose gives the creepiest look on his face when he, like, realizes I have a. I, I like this is a person I can seduce. It is creepy beyond belief. And I got to be honest in looking up hidden research, I couldn't find any notes where the censors had issues with these things. Mm-hmm. I didn't see anything. And I don't know if it's because the, it's very clear that he's supposed to be the bad guy by this point. Yeah. That they're getting away with it. It just seems so brash. Yeah. No, this is definitely when it takes like that turn of like it's utter it becomes chaos in a way. Like it's controlled chaos in the beginning and then it becomes it becomes less controlled as the film goes on. And this is when it becomes very unstable. Yeah. And he goes to Mexico and instead of getting a divorce, well, he must have had to get a divorce to do what he does here because he then marries Betty Lou. Mm-hmm. Ew. And Yeah. It's a weird scene. It's like, a it's a weird scene in the form of a homecoming back to yeah, New York. Yeah. Where we've also gotten the indications at this point that Marsha and Mel flirt with each other a little bit. Mm -hmm. Mel's also kind of deviating away from the writing at this point. He's now starting to learn like, no, I don't want to be around this fucking loser. I, I have a good idea for a book. It's about a roommate who has another roommate and they're kind of at odds with each other. They're an odd couple. Hey, don't you think this would make a great play? No, no. He's writing- this is going to make a great sitcom in the 2010s. <laughs> First in the 70s, then in the 2010s. You know what I'm also going to do? 
I'm going to make two movies with Anne Margaret in the 90s. <laughs> Not one, two. And she'll... We'll also have Sophia Loren in the second one. Not sure why, because it doesn't seem to be needed at this point. When Sophia Loren is in the topic of discussion, the question should be, why not? <laughs> you didn't stop to think about uh, whether or not you could. You should have thought about whether or not you should. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum describing why grumpier old men doesn't work. <laughs> Um, yes, she, he comes back on the plane. Marsha's expecting to be like, okay, now we can, like, I love this man. We can get married now. Because she does love Ro- Lonesome Roads. Mm-hmm. The love, I question. Because yeah. I, it almost seems like she's unsure of it herself. Well, it's, I mean, it's very, very, she, there's she's definitely a power dynamic there. And, and, and she's so. protective of him. Yeah. Because she, because of her history with him. Yeah. It's, so it is very like, it's almost like it, it's like a weird maternal thing going on there in that certain regard. Yeah. Like, I'm just like, well, I've got to take care of him, like take care of this big, 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 dumb baby. Yeah. <laughs> Acting like an idiot. But of course he unveils Betty Lou in front of the plane. And we see that scene of her getting past. Oh yeah. The guards. And then rescinding back and Lonesome Roads noticing it. Yeah. And Lonesome Roads is completely unaware. Yeah. Of what he's done, because I'm I'm drunk on power. This time I was just drunk on Viterjex, but I balanced it out with the drunkenness on fame. So the speed was balanced out by the drunkenness of fame. Yeah, you understand? I understand. Do you understand how the addiction works, Henry? It's all there. It's almost as if though I have a problem. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, he introduces his wife in a fully televised baton twirling thing. Where she's asked to kind of strip down to her skivvies. Very uncomfortable scene television (laughs) i don't know how else to describe this scene beyond you and it goes it like it really does take its time like it's like here's one thing i notice about here here's two things i notice about her and here's the third thing i notice about and like that whole thing like i think kazan is looking at this like going up to andy griffin they're like going like all right i need you to be fucking terrible yeah what do you mean? Like I need to give a bad performance? No, 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 no. I need you to be a goddamn animal. Yeah. Like a goddamn monster of a human being to the point where there is no redemption. Mm-hmm. Well, and I supposed to be the lead here? No, no. You're Not smarter. Than, like, you're smart. You're smarter than this, Andy. We talked about this. Remember, you're a college graduate. Yeah. You get it. I know. It just feels weird. I have to get into this weird spot where I have to become angry and throw chairs. And then my friend Don Knotts comes up and says, well, Andy, why are you doing that? Yeah. Look, I don't fucking care. Get, I'll, I'll get you an entire Ikea set to break apart. <laughs> and it doesn't even exist yet. <laughs> Shoot it. <Yeah. laughs> and because, yeah, like the, the, we get, more of his arrogance pushing through and Marsha's had it at this point. He goes to meet up with her after returning and Marsha is heartbroken by Rhodes's actions. He tries to smooth it over by going, you know what? You're going to get a piece of everything I make. You're always going to, I'm always going to take care of you. And she goes, fuck you. I want half. Mm-hmm. I want full profit sharing agreement. I want, I want it all. 
because I brought you out of that fucking jail. So if I'm going to stick with this, I get everything. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Laying into the fact of like, don't forget, Rhodes, you're here because of me. So Marsha, in a sense, becomes complicated, but she gets redeemed because her exhaustion reaches a reaches a point where there's she can't put up with it no matter how much money she's given. Yeah. Um, and he does this thing where the scene where he finds out Betty Lou has been cheating on him Mm -hmm. with Joey. Yeah. His manager who's been giving him all these big breaks and whatnot. Yeah. Is it's this moment of quiet, subtle, like monstrosity. Yeah. Where he doesn't really overreact. He, he sees what's going on. He has the conversation with Joey, and the scene is actually really well blocked. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't know if I, how to describe it to the audience, but like you see, he sees Joey coming out, and it's a slow walk, and Joey's walking back out the door and justifying his actions. Yeah, and Rhodes is basically kind of like following him, but he's not going to break his neck. Yeah, <laughs> so there's like this this build up and then it emanates out of Betty Lou coming out in like full on, like she's been citified. Yeah. And Rhodes going like calling down to the lobby and being like, put her on a plane. Yeah. Get her back to Arkansas. And he reduces this new marriage in his life to somebody he was smitten with. I'm going to go off with the bat and just say for physical reasons only. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's fucking clear. At given this point the fact, in the film, it's, yeah. Yeah, like, at this point, he's... It's like, I think like how you described it earlier, like he's an animal at this point. He's lost his humanistic kind yeah, of exactly. traits to himself. He's working so. off of pure animal instinct yeah. here. And his animal instinct here is, well, I still have you under contract. So as long as you stay in Arkansas, you'll continue to draw a salary. She goes, well, I'm supposed to be on the Ed Sullivan show doing my baton twirling act. And he goes, you can do it for them at the local diner. Yeah. Uh, but you will not be. But you will be in Arkansas doing it. And in this time, he goes to Marsha again for comfort. But he's bringing with it not the heartbreak of Betty Lou, but something that has happened to him in spite of the Betty Lou thing. Mm-hmm. There is a politician by the name of Senator Worthington Fuller. He is running for re-election. And the general, the sponsor, uh, General Hainsworth, played by Percy Warham, who I think Percy Warham gives a wonderful performance. I in this agree. Movie. Yeah, one hundred percent. Because actually, there's the scene we haven't we didn't talk about it, but it's the scene where um, Lonesome comes to visit the sponsor's house. Yeah. And the Vita, the Vita check, the head of Vita checks is fucking anxiety written over roads. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like he's just like I I don't understand. He's he's selling the project wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And the general is just like, no, he's selling the product, period. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but yes, anyway, the general invites everybody over. They're going to go over the the strategy for how to get Fuller reelected. Mm-hmm. And they're looking at Fuller's footage. Fuller sounds like a politician. Yeah. 
And when I say like a politician, I mean like a politician before the innovation of something like television. Oh, yeah. Or even before the innovation of something like radio. Or really just more of like the idea of a politician. Yeah. Because it's seen as bland, too direct. Yeah. Not personable. And Lonesome Roads comes up with modern politics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) the scene is really, it's a strange scene to watch today. Because it's he, it the scene just describes exactly what is happening right now. Like, yep, yep, and not, not even what's happening right now too. Think about think about it this no, way yeah, too. I, oversimplification. Y- yeah, 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 yeah. I was gonna say like, not too long after this movie, we get the first televised presidential debate yeah. with Nixon and Kennedy. Yeah. Long story short, both are basically pushing their positions. Yeah. And over time. These debates have evolved into the idea of a politician connecting with the people in a way that feels disingenuous. Yeah. Fuller, I know we made fun of the name, but let's let's put it in a more real yeah, context. Yeah. yeah, you know, like he clearly comes from some form of wealth. Yeah. The way he's speaking speaks to this kind of way of I know what's best for the people, I'm a parent. Mm-hmm. And Rhodes's reaction is like, "You need to get down to their level." Mm-hmm. And he describes a political strategy that ends up permeating our political stage for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. Not even onward, but after this, yeah, we're still going to deal with this. Oh yeah, and uh, it's. I will say it's the least scary part of this whole layout here. Yeah. Because it is the, the one thing I, uh, I've seen this clip before watching it within the con- the grand scheme of everything. It's the one scene in the movie where I'm like, it's a little on the nose, but okay. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's, it doesn't know it's on the nose yet. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's coming up with something different. And even at the time it may still have seen on the nose, but it also doesn't like it's not unwatchable. Yeah. It's not like eye rolly. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. It's just you are hearing ideas that seem so normal to us now. Yeah. Being unfurled in nineteen fifty seven by Andy Griffith. Not everybody's gonna be ignorant to this fact, but there are people who are gonna be like, Well, you know, like this is this is crazy. How could this possibly happen? Yeah. Well, you've got television now. Yeah, you don't just have the radio where there can be presidential debates if they so choose, or political or presidential rallies. Yeah, but it is not what television ends up becoming. Yeah, or even what social media ends up becoming. And he gives this spiel, and he nearly knocks the general backward with his approach to it. Oh yeah, because they have a newspaper publisher in the room who basically speaks to the voice of reason. Yeah, and. <laughs> the only bad performance in the movie because he's literally it feels like he's reading his dialogue off of a cue card yeah yeah (laughs) it's like well this is not how theater worked political politics worked in my day in my day politics were involving politicians talking about the issues hey homer want some beer and nachos and maybe watch some television (laughs) meanwhile on set ella kazan was like yeah we got it like, we can move on. Like, so. Now, wait, 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 wait. Elio. Mr. Kazan. Didn't that seem a little wooden to you? 
Well, yeah, but he's the he's the voice of a past generation. He's going to sound a little stilted. He works for a newspaper. Obviously, he's going to sound wooden. Now, you know what? Hey, correct me if I'm wrong, but I saw this movie in North Carolina. They they did show it. I, I can't believe they showed it, but they did. It was this movie about a newspaper publisher who was a magnate. He ended up becoming a political candidate. He ended up marrying an opera singer. He ended up living in a big old fucking mansion with his own private zoo. He didn't sound like a wooden stick in the butt. But also, he was the progressive one, so I guess maybe you're on the right track. I don't know, but I'm just saying, can't he have energy? <laughs> yeah. Can't he have a personality? Or, I don't know, maybe get a little more upset when I'm basically going to stumble over his entire plan? <laughs> I don't know, just thinking, Alia. Anyway, I'm going to get back to destroying this chair. Oh, <laughs> stop it, Andy. This is getting depressing. <laughs> <laughs> and, anyway, the scene ends. He's basically convinced Fuller, like, all right, I got to be connecting with the people, play this political theater game. And in this process, Lonesome Rhodes gets the brilliant idea, well, say, I should be doing this on a weekly basis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get the formation of modern news coverage mm -hmm. that isn't from well let, let's back it up opinion shows like this did exist in the 60s and 70s this is an unheard of what he specifically is describing though feels so specific to the last 20 years starting with the creation of 24-hour news networks which goes hand-in-hand hand with the political theater that happened between Vidal and Buckley. So I'm curious to hear from you here on this one. When you hear him spouting off this idea, you've already lived in a world where this is the norm. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at this and I'm going like, well, this is interesting Like, because like, I've seen the two different versions of this. And also I immerse myself in past culture. You've lived with 24-hour news networks in your life constantly. Yeah. And I'm curious how you look at that. Like, is this the more terrifying scene or is like, does it not even close to the terrifying moment? Well, I think it is such, such the norm now where yeah. it is. Uh, yeah. Yes. It's terrifying. Yeah. yeah yes. It's problematic. Uh, but it is one of those things where it's like, I view that scene as a necessary evil or maybe, or an inevitable evil in a way uh, where it's uh, like we've said many times this podcast, it, it's still a very relevant topic. Uh-huh. Uh, and I mean, I'm not smart enough to have a solution for this. No, 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 so. no. We're not here. We, I mean, I mean, you've you've listened to the show. You've been on. The yeah, show. yeah, we're not here to solve the problem. Yeah, we're going to talk about what we're seeing. Yeah, and I think it's. I think it very much is one of those things where I view it as a inevitable evil, and I think that's why it comes. It the scene itself is so powerful to realize that this is this, this is like a 70 year old film at this point. Then it's still. As relevant as ever, yeah. That idea. It's so. um, it's it's, I it, I think it, it. I mean, it extends to Schulberg and Kazan, looking at the environment and the culture and what television is, yeah. and specifically through Schulberg's writing, indicating where the world can go. I think that when you are of Schulberg and Kazan's mindset. It's interesting even being at the forefront of one of the most controversial elements that you can be as a progressive. Yeah. 
to find themselves still pushing through and what's more being fucking fortune tellers in the process. Yeah. It's not to say that nobody would have ever come up with this. Yeah. Because again, keep in mind like network doubles down on that in the seventies. Oh yeah. You know, like the Peter Finch character like speaks even more to the reality. Oh yeah. If nobody had gotten to it, then network would have gotten to it. Yeah, exactly. And face the crowd just kind of does it first. Yeah. And, uh, the general response to this whole idea of having a weekly show regarding this subject is like, he does the kind, polite sponsor version of, are you fucking high? Yeah. To which Lonesome Rose replies, well, I can just go ahead and pick up the phone and call any other sponsor and they'll have me in a heartbeat because again, the world has gone Rhodes. Yeah. The general acquiesces to giving him the show. And it is very much a folksy town hall. Um, now, uh, and, and something, something also to keep in mind, like, like these kind of like town hall ideas, which extend from politics and all that also had entertainment elements to them in early radio. Fred Allen had a version of this called town hall tonight. It's a variety show, but he does address modern politics and modern current events of his time on that radio show, especially in its full hour variety format. Mm-hmm. Since it's radio, you're not getting this elaborate set mm-hmm. that's designed to make it look like a Cracker Barrel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's all it's, all it's missing is a gift shop with candy that you don't see anywhere else. Yeah, um, there is a element of Town Hall Tonight vibes that I got from it, but taken down the road by a dark, twisted human being. Yeah. Um, and Fred Allen was was a satirist, much of the Will Rogers ilk, but Allen was a little bit more sincere, and he was also a very modest person yeah. who dealt with a lot of health issues. He wanted to be more of a writer than anything else. Yeah, radio kind of stumbled into him because of vaudeville and yeah, yeah, yeah. such like that. Yeah. Um, it's also why he didn't have a film career, guys. Uh, yeah. But anyway, they get to this show, and so that's what Rhodes goes to Marsha with. All that has been leading to Rhodes going back to Marshall going like, I am going to rise even further than the top, Mm -hmm. the tippy top. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, He's not only going to have this innovative show that will have consequences 70 years down the line for us, (laughs) Um, but he's also working with these fighters for Fuller proposal. He's going to get directively and actively involved in the politics. Yeah. To the point where Fuller is even going to offer him a cabinet position. Rhodes is already seeing five miles ahead of what his destiny could be. Yeah. And Marsha is scared shitless because she just realized, oh my God, I made a monster. Yeah. And then you just hear Rob Zombie's song going, how to make a monster, baby. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I just remixed the entire movie for people like yeah. when Tarantino would. Quentin Tarantino's a face in the crowd motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this scene, I think, is... I wanted to get your thoughts on this scene from in terms of a dramatic standpoint because it's like... You talked about the cinematography in this film and how yeah. dark it is and how like crushed black it is. Yeah. This is where it's at it, its absolute bleakest. Yeah. Most of the time, Kazan's sticking his camera on Marsha. Yeah. He's staying away from Rhodes. Yeah. I wanted to know, like what your thoughts were on that. I do want to pitch what my thoughts were initially on it though. 
Oh, by all means, go ahead. He can't. The camera can't bear to look at Rhodes mm-hmm. the way Marsha can't bear to look at Rhodes. Well, I think it's the same way that, like, uh, in a similar way, both the camera and uh, Marsha are kind of viewing it as this is part of my creation. Yeah. And, like, it's the regret of that feel, that feeling of regret and that feeling of responsibility to it. Right. So it's, it, it, it's, it's weird because like, because she is like keeping herself at some form of a distance. Mm-hmm. Y- you get like, I love movies about regret. Yeah. And I get like an entire amount of regret within the span of two minutes mm-hmm. it is beautiful. Like uh, P- Patricia Neal. I need to, watch her in more movies because the only other thing that I've seen her in, well, there's two things. It's day of the earth stood still mm-hmm. and breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah. She gives this intimate internalized performance as Marsha that only gets its big moment. Yeah. In what's about to come. Oh yeah. Because first off she's already continued having discussions with Mel. Yeah, I'm still here. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing this book. Hey, what about this? What if I went out to sea with another man who I worked with before and we called it out to sea? <laughs> what if my friend Jack <laughs> played the inspiration for one of the most beloved Simpsons characters imaginable? <laughs> um, He's talked about like, there are conversations that Marsha and Mel have had in regards to the monster that's been created. And what's more, Marsha not willing to leave it because of how much money is at stake and the obligation she feels to Rhodes. And Mel's Mel's pretty much washed his hands of it. He's writing a book about this whole experience. And he's not too dissimilar to me, Mel, from these characters uh, from 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 a certain element of where the world is, where we know that the problem is, and we point it out on its face, but we have this kind of like removal from it. Mm-hmm. I think that Mel is the character that, if anything, was going to get like an Oscar recognition for a performance beyond Griffith and Neil, yeah. like or like or like anything else, like anything in the acting department. Yeah. I would definitely give it to Neil. I think I would definitely give a nomination to uh, Griffith, if not a win. Mm-hmm. I think you give some form of recognition to Mathau here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because his character is the righteous character. However, he is put in a very weird position that most characters of this type don't find themselves in. Mm-hmm. He understands that Marsha is in a bad situation. He also understands how important this is to the book he wants to write. Yeah. And instead of actively saying like, you know what? I'm just going to tell him he's an asshole and tell him that you don't like him and take you away from this. He's letting her figure it out for herself. Yeah. Which feels cruel. But when we get to the scene we're about to talk about after Marsha leaves Mm -hmm. Rhodes it makes Matthau's character so much more rich for my eyes in the regards of him having to play this archetype of the golden age of Hollywood that no, that doesn't really exist the same way anymore. Yeah. It's become much more complicated. I think this is part of where it can start. 
Um, Marsha leaves. She goes. She pretends to go get clothing for him, mm-hmm. and he's like drunk as shit, like can't move around, whatever. Yeah. She books it out of there. He starts screaming for her. She gets in a cab and leaves. Mm-hmm. And Lonesome Roads doesn't have a script, so he's just like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm gonna I'm gonna do what I always do. Wing it. <laughs> yeah. Which works for everybody. <laughs> Every single person who's ever won it has done it. Yep. <laughs> and he starts doing his Lonesome Road spiel, and part of it deals with further selling Fuller to the people, looking like a hometown country boy. Mm-hmm. That political fati- that political theater that we see unveiled in, like, you know, a candidate you'd want to have a beer with. Yeah. Which has brought us down more dark roads than anyone could have ever thought. Yeah. Uh, all because we wanted to have beer with them. Yeah. What, they can't drink anything stronger? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the problem. That's the takeaway. <laughs> I, I'm trying to I'm trying to find some light here because yeah. we're gonna get even darker. Uh-huh. <laughs> because Marsha comes into the station late and Rose is just like, I want to talk to you later. I want to talk to you later. Like yeah. you're like you, you my in my office. He's talking to his boss. Yeah. It's already been established that she's his boss at this point. Yeah. And he's yelling at her like this. She is zoned out. Mm-hmm. She's at the control booth where the sound is being handled. Mm-hmm. Sound control booth indicates whether or not you, the television audience is going to hear or not hear Lonesome Rose, especially during the end credit sequence. Yeah. And this is one of two instances where I'm going to play clips from the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm going to play in its entirety Lonesome Rhodes' bitching of the audience and his disdain for his public that you hear spoken after Marsha makes the fatal decision to switch on the sound for people to hear at home Mm -hmm. and then grabbing for dear life onto that soundboard. Let them hear it. Let them hear it. Mm -hmm. And I'll play for you right now. Are those morons out there? Yeah. I can take chicken fertilizer instead of doing some caviar. I can make them eat dog food and they'll think it's steak. Sure, I got them like this. You know what the public's like. A cage full of guinea pigs. Good night, you stupid idiot. <laughs> Good night, you miserable slob. <laughs> There are a lot of trained seals. I toss them a dead fish and they'll flap their flippers. <laughs> well, Why, he's a monster. Well, thanks, Joe Jack. The disdain and the the vitriol, the vitriol, and 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 like the condescension. Oh yeah, it is. This is the scary part for me. One of the one of the two, because the other one's coming up in a second. Mm-hmm. Is the scary part is we live in a world today where you can hear 
or read of evidence of this behavior happening. And unlike the people in the movie, we just choose to pretend that nothing's wrong. Yeah. This scene of vile being spewed is something that you... The response of the audience is correct. Mm-hmm. Lonesome Rhodes leaves, doesn't know what's happened to him. <laughs> Completely ignorant. Like, well, I guess I saved America again. All right. <laughs> um, Job well done. I'm Time off to go to, home. I'm off to a political dinner or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which one involves more drinking? This one, I don't want more fame drinking. This time I want actual drinking. You know, I, I need to celebrate. My fame was talking about the disdain I have for my public with people who can't hear me. They can't hear me at all. Goes down the elevator. We start seeing the numbers descend and intercut with the audience who had just heard him call them a bunch of idiots going like, well, fuck you, Rhodes. (laughs) Not putting up with this. Calling the station manager. Then calling the sponsor, the general. Then calling five other people. And they all basically, within the span of a single edited scene, Lonesome Rhodes loses his power and literally goes all the way down. Mm-hmm. Not unlike what the elevator operator told him was yep. going to do. All yeah. the way down. Uh, again, it is very on the nose, but it, it, I think the movie earns that Yeah, to this yeah. day. In its day, probably feels even more innovative. Here, I'm just like, no, you earned this. Yeah. I feel like there are cliches that this movie presents where you can still do them, but you have to earn them. Oh, yeah. yeah, you, yeah. you really have to earn them with something innovative on the outside of it. Yeah. And then you draw that idea from the past into it. Yeah. And then that's what makes it feel new and fresh when, in fact, it's been done before. Yeah. And we get him going back into his limo. Again, still unaware of what's going on. Very dramatic cutting here to indicate like how unaware he actually is. And we get Marsha and Mel in the studio. And Mel's going like, you have to tell him. And you have to tell him because you have to save a bunch of other people from getting yelled at or kicked at or fired. Mm -hmm. You have to save them. Yeah. This is one of the reasons why I love Mel's characters because he's just like, no, no, no. Like I hate to be the bearer of bad news here, but yeah, you created the monster. You have to destroy it. Yeah. This, this character is such the voice of reason that it feels so melodramatic to a certain degree, but I'm just like, coming out of Mathow, it feels real. Yeah. This is like one of those testament things to Mathow. He's not just this funny old guy that I keep making fun of. He was a great actor. There's always an emotional truth about it that he brings to it, whether for comedic or for dramatic, and he could play both. Mm-hmm. Here he is playing into the darkest of dark realities. I love it. Mm-hmm. The only other time I've seen him this affecting... In the regards of what the in the regards of a perception that I have with Mathau is still in the Sunshine Boys when he has a heart attack mm-hmm. on the stairwell. Yeah. And you're feeling something very dark in a situation that has progressively gotten more chaotic. Here it's gotten chaotic and dark as shit. And Marsha still doesn't want to tell him, but she pretty much acquiesces at that point because we get this lone scene and this is the scary scene for me. Like mm-hmm. this is the top scary scene. Yeah. He has called Marsha. Marsha answers the phone 
And Lonesome Rhodes is pissed because everybody's suddenly canceling their plans to meet with him. Yeah. And we get the tantrum to end all tantrums. This one I'm not going to play a clip of, but there's uh, there's several uh, African-American butlers lined up, and they start giggling at his audaciousness. Mm-hmm. Not too dissimilarly from how the um, waiters at the KKK rally in Black Klansmen are being appalled yeah. by what they're seeing with David Duke in that yeah. hall. Spike Lee loves this movie, clearly. Yeah. He starts yelling at him, going like, you're going to love me. You're going to love me. He starts putting his hands on him, and he just starts fucking like losing it. Oh, yeah. He has... There's nothing left. There is nothing left. He is a monster. He refers to him as black. Yeah, like yeah. oh fuck. No, yeah. And and that's a moment where like again you're talking about like racism and the other one not like we, we're already clear he's a monster here. Yeah, so what yeah. he's saying, this is a monster doing a monster thing. Yeah, and it shows also a contrast to his reaction to the jail cell in the beginning. Uh, to show his his full derangement at this point to yeah. show. He has built upon himself expectations he never expected to live up to. Exactly. Like he was, he was a drunk in a fucking jail cell. He had no path. Yeah. He gets a path and he can't manage it. And we get Mel and Marsha going up to Lonesome Rhodes' penthouse where he's going to be holding this dinner and talk about theatrical. Yeah. Kazan coming from theater. There's sometimes in films ways that you stage something in a theatrical way that then become a standard for cinematic visual storytelling. Mm -hmm. And it could be visual or it could just be elemental. Something I like about this is that this is we have mainly three actors within the frame at any time with one actor off to the side because he is playing an applause machine for Rhodes as he is giving his own political speech that he's dreaming that he dreamed up for himself. And then Marsha and Mel get further in and they see that he's at the top of a balcony where he has already threatened to Marsha once before to drop, uh, jump off of mm-hmm. if she didn't come over to see him. Yeah. Giving this speech about what he's going to do for people. He still thinks that he can be the voice of the people. Yeah. He still thinks after all that has been revealed, he can still be the voice of the people. Yeah. That's a, I mean, now Henry, that's a kind of delusion that doesn't exist today, does it? I no, mean, not I, don't, at all. I don't know. There's, no, there's, I think that we're you know, all very well rounded people now. Oh, yeah. So. Well, yeah. No problems at all whatsoever. Yeah. And it, is shattering because he f- gets down and he, well, first he said he sees he recognizes Marsha at last, which eyeline wise was weird because I I'm fairly sure it's indicated that he would have seen her. Mm-hmm. It's weird in the cutting. I don't know, not a big deal. He notices Marsha. He goes down and he unlays to Marsha like I've got a plan. I got a plan to fix all of this. This is, is going to be great. You know, Lonesome Roads, the next generation, and then Lonesome Roads, Deep Space Nine. And like, like I'm, I'm going to keep doing this. Yeah. And Marsha then goes like, I did it. I'm the one who turned the sound on. Mm-hmm. 
And Rhodes doesn't react. Yeah. It's like the last nerve is severed. Yeah. He can't comprehend it. Yeah. And he basically lets them know to leave. And then... Rhodes snaps back at them mm-hmm. about, I can keep doing this. Yeah. And then Mathau replies with the second clip that I'm going to lay in here. Listen, I'm not through yet. You know what's going to happen to me? Suppose I tell you exactly what's going to happen to you. You're going to be back in television. Only it won't be quite the same as it was before. There'll be a reasonable cooling off period, and then somebody will say, why don't we try them again in an inexpensive format? People's memories aren't too long. And you know, in a way, he'll be right. Some of the people forget, and some of them won't. Oh, you'll have a show. Maybe not the best hour, or in the top 10, maybe not even in the top 35. But you'll have a show. Just won't be quite the same as it was before. And a couple of new fellas will come along, and pretty soon a lot of your fans will be flocking around them. And then one day somebody will ask, whatever happened to, uh, what's his name? You know, the one who was so big. The number one fella a couple of years ago. He was famous. How can we forget a name like that? Oh, by the way, have you seen uh, Barry Mills? I think he's the greatest thing since Will Rogers. This is why you give math out the Oscar oh, yeah. nomination. Yeah, yeah. It's this speech. It's such a showy actory moment, but he sells it. Oh, yeah. It's what, again, extends him to me beyond that figure of reason. Yeah. And turns him into a figure of commentary. He's very much Schulberg and Kazan wrapped up into a big old, awesome, not quite an old man, but clearly an old man package because... We never knew. <laughs> yeah. Was I ever young? I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> You'll have to find out. Watch Grumpy Old Men Origins, the younger years. Jesus. <laughs> That's how weird Hollywood's going to get. They're going to make origin stories that make absolutely no sense. First Wolverine, now this. <laughs> um, and yeah, he gives that speech and they leave. And Lonesome Roads finally lets it out after Mm -hmm. they're gone. Mm -hmm. And he keeps yelling for Marsha. Something I love about this film, it only ends with the end. Yeah. The sound of Marsha, Marsha, pleading for her to come back. No credit, no cast list. Yeah. Nothing else. Yeah. It's just the end. It's just over. Yeah. And now, now I don't know if that's like, so much a creative choice, so much as just like, you know, we already showed the credits up front. Yeah, yeah. But it feels raw to leave the audience on that note. 
it's a very dark almost to indicate that the cast is actual people Mm -hmm. but like as as if though this was reality yeah almost as if we're gonna lay into the level of this reality one more time that's what the feeling i got whether or not it's like accurate to the portrayal of everything you know yeah it's a matter of opinion (laughs) (laughs) it's how we art is a subjective art form as our friend ryan says yeah um now this film was received with a mixed response yes to say the least you want to hear from our favorite uh, gentleman, Bosley Crowther? Oh, please. Oh, God. Wonderful critic for the New York Times. He liked Griffith's performance. said, Mr. Griffith plays him with thunderous vigor. But he felt that the character overshadowed the rest of the cast and the story. He says, as a consequence, the dominance of the hero and his monstrous momentum eventually become a bit monotonous when they are not truly opposed. And then he also found Rhodes highly entertaining and well worth pondering when he is on the rise. And he called the ending inane. I don't know what to do anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, no, no, no. Here, here, here. I'll, I will give him this. I could see how somebody would see Griffith's performance and think like, well, it's just such a huge performance that none of the other stuff really matters. Yeah. If you went into that initially and you're just focusing on Griffith's vig- if you're looking at acting only as show off, yeah. Then yeah, I get it. Yeah. Uh and and he even acknowledges like it's entertaining and well worth pondering when he is on the rise. Yeah. To call the ending inane is almost as like, man, you were doing so good and then bam, you just completely decided to turn your brain off and not care. Yeah. I don't get it. Like, I don't get it. Bosley Crowther is not an unintelligent human being. I've been looking into his history. He's not an idiot. Yeah. Anywho, though. Uh, but you know who liked the movie a lot and liked it unconditionally? Who? Francois Truffaut. Oh. Yeah. He liked it. He called it a great and beautiful work whose importance transcends the dimensions of a cinema review. <laughs> Very strong. What words a great from... way to get out of reviewing something. <laughs> <laughs> you know why I like this is so good. I just I can't even review it. I don't know what to tell you. Like, so... You know? Do you know why I like space chimps? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so good. <laughs> it transcends a possible review. So God. Oh oh, Michael Bay's Transformers. The Which last one? night. Last night. Yeah, that's one. <laughs> Transcends cinema. Anthony Hopkins' performance is entertaining and wonderful to watch as he's on the rise. Yeah. <laughs> but I call the ending inane. <laughs> well, listen, when the entire earth collapses, it's a little inane, I gotta say. And so, like, I understand where they're coming from. <laughs> What's more inane? That or Kelsey Grammer's death in the fourth one? You know, it's... I want your honest opinion on this because I know you like them. Um, <laughs> gosh. Um, listen to Last Night. It's the second film in the uh, Cade duology, and it wraps up the full series in a way. Uh, it doesn't compare to the Witwicky trilogy, um, but it does provide some things that I think are very necessary and uh, to the storyline. I mean, after the fall of Chicago, we... We really have to. How do we up the fall of Chicago? Really, at the end of the day, and so you have to do it in a way that transcends 
cinema, cinema itself. itself. Yeah, yeah. Francois yeah. Truffaut hated Bumblebee, but he liked all the other five ones. Well, of course. I mean, Bumblebee is just a movie, whereas <laughs> <laughs> whereas the the five films that Michael Bay made that's art. At the end of the day. <laughs> There's articles where Anthony Hopkins was like, Michael Bay is a genius. Well, of course. <laughs> and I'm like, I understand why you're saying that. Because th- there's a technical side. Th- Michael Bay is not. A, my, Michael Bay is an artist in a certain form or fashion. Yeah. 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 He's that. How you read that quote <laughs> will determine what side of offense you lie on. Well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, the, the film. This film's impact on the current scale is almost like a guiding tool that we haven't bothered to dig fully back up. Um, if it got past me, which I'm frustrated that it did, I can only imagine the other people discovering this film for the first time and realizing that a lot of these ideas and these concerns were prevalent. And the idea oh, yeah. of a monster such as Lonesome Roads finding prominence in a country like America mm-hmm. in the way that he does uh, leads directly into the modern world we found ourselves in and have in some ways always found ourselves in on and off um, where that particular type of theater never goes away. What's more, let's even devolve it back. Television. Yeah. It would be safe to say that most of our television heroes that we then extend off into memes and clips that we use on the internet aren't coming from anything written out of the imagination. Yeah. I wanted your thoughts on this because you are of a generation that grew up with reality television as, as a forefront force. We're only five years apart, but yeah, five or six years apart. But I feel like you've, you see this probably even more than I do. Yeah. I mean the, uh, the line of reality and opinion is non-existent at this point. Mm-hmm. It, it you can't you can't really if if you want to stay up to date with the news and that kind of thing, you have to follow eight different publications, uh, all ranging in opinions and that kind of thing, just to understand. Like, well, this is what left wing thought. This is what right wing thought. But this, what what really happened? And the idea of reality, I think, is almost a thing of the past at this point. Yeah. And I also look at it in terms of like, even to take it out of the political spectrum, yeah. the idea of personalities, yeah. reality personalities, I'm not going to like, you know, turn this into a bash the Kardashians podcast because yeah. it's too fucking easy. Yeah. I will say that there is a charisma attached to some of these figures that Lonesome Roads innovates. Yeah. I mean, you get these. Uh, by idea, not by practice. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, it's like, and I think the, like the Kardashians, for as an example. First uh, of all, they never saw a face in the crowd. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> but like, like the idea of influencers in general, yes. of like being people who exist solely to to manipulate them, like the public in a way. Yeah, at its core, I think that is a very dangerous game, and I think this that all started at this point in the fifties, and with television and media at being so obsessed with image 
and so obsessed with how do people see us right uh i think uh and having that be more having how people see us be more important than how they hear us i think is a massive element right which i (laughs) i thought about that after about 15 minutes after sitting down with some of the special features and going like you know we need old time radio to come back (laughs) And I'm not talking about the drama one. I'm talking like we need to get rid of television somehow. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Like, and, and it's, obviously it's an impractical idea and a dumb idea because there's a, there's a wonderful element of television that provides wonderful narrative storytelling oh, in the course, process. Yeah. Yeah. But it is true. The moment you were able to see something like that in your living room, it became intimate. It became personal. Mm-hmm. In the theater, it's intimate, but it's also communal. Yeah. It depend depending on how you choose to block things out in your own mind or in, ingest information. Yeah, you can be in a lonely theater and it can be a solitary experience. Yeah, but it's not your living room. Yeah, it's somewhere you went, paid five cents, got cheap popcorn with not butter. Oh, yeah. and I'm talking about today. Back then they had our real butter. Yeah, and you sit in the dark room and you watch a story unfold or you watch a newsreel even. Yeah, and the newsreels at that point, primarily not footing in any subjective viewpoint yeah uh you get cartoons uh you'd get a short subject television brings all those things in one form or another into the living room and creates an intimacy yeah and at some point having just the news read aloud isn't enough yeah suddenly you need the small moments of murrow and cronkite where they become subjective yeah you need that Every time, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. every show, yeah. every single person yeah. expressing their viewpoint on the news, where some of it's responsible, others have chosen to obviously take it down a dark path. Yeah, uh, and uh, I wanted to talk more about though. It's easy to talk about the modern relevancy in society. Yeah. Let's talk about film for a second, though. Yeah. Um. First of all, the film gained a reputation over time. Mm-hmm. On Rotten Tomatoes, it currently has 88% rating based on 32 reviews. Mm-hmm. This is in counting any reviews that might trickle in down the line through their archiving project, which we learned about this week. Fairly recently. Yeah, yeah we learned about this in the weirdest of ways with... Um, yeah, You know that movie that I was referring to over to Alia? Mm-hmm. There was a, a review from a peer, paper of the era, so it technically does count. That didn't like the movie, so now it's 99%. Funnily enough, the most perfect movie ever made, Casablanca, has that 99% as well because somebody in 2004 decided to be a douche. Mm -hmm. But you're not going to believe this, folks. The one that took over the crown involved a little bear who liked marmalade. They found him outside of a train station, and and he developed a family. And then he fought Hugh Grant on top of a train and taught prisoners that it's okay to have feelings. Yeah. And that man, I'll tell you, that bear, he fucking earned it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, yeah, the the rating system. uh, Actually, I am curious to see how these reviews as they're cold are going to adjust that metric. Because I don't really look into the metric that much anymore. Yeah. I mainly point it out for people who are intrigued by it. I don't care. Yeah. To me, like, I'm able to read something like... Crowther's look on it and be yeah. like, okay, I'm seeing what he appreciates, but what he doesn't appreciate. Yeah. That's nuance. I appreciate that. Yeah. Now, the film has inspired 
in terms of the cinematic level, I would argue it falls in line with a lot of Kazan and Schulberg work where it inspires people to speak out on a current issue yeah. or warn of something to come. Yeah. I think network falls in line with this as we talked about. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think there's elements of the Truman show here uh, that, that you can point to in here, but it's going for a more sci-fi concept. Um, but there's, but let's go off this most obvious example. And, and again, Truman shows more of like the reality idea. Mm-hmm. There's a really good example of where Face in the Crowd has gone to this day. And it's Spike Lee's 2000 film Bamboozled. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bamboozled, for anybody who doesn't know the film, uh, Henry, you, Henry, actually, you, you, I know you like the film. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you want to help me describe it for people, because it's, it is a film by Spike Lee that points a commentary at the media's portrayal of black people during the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. The main character of the film uh, is a highly educated black writer who learns through his boss, played by Michael Rappaport, who in a really good performance, dark as shit, really yeah. good performance, uh, learns through his boss that his work is too popular. He's not going to be able to get out of his contract. He doesn't like writing down to these stereotypical levels of black culture is being represented at that time. So he decides to throw out an idea so ridiculous that he will instantly get fired. And his idea is a modern day minstrel show. Mm-hmm. The movie then turns into an astounding indictment of our ability as a society to fall into that uh media media consumption and lack of awareness yeah it's a movie that i saw before we've we dealt with what we've dealt with the last four years yeah the problem was i didn't really pay attention to how relevant it unfortunately still was oh yeah and i think that when i'm looking at those special features from the criterion that we finally got I'm glad that they did it. Yeah. Spike Lee talks about openly. This is my version of if you mix the producers with a face in the crowd. Yeah. That's all you need to know. Yeah. Even Lee, who's somebody who might look at Kazan's, I don't know how he would view Kazan's actions at the HUAC. Yeah. Maybe in line with Scorsese because he and Scorsese are pals. Mm -hmm. And Spike Lee is an intelligent filmmaker, regardless of what you think of his films, regardless of how you view him on a political scale, which frankly, I would encourage you to try to look at the art on its own sake before you immediately go right into the political game, because yeah. he is an amazing filmmaker with great visual acumen and sense. Not too dissimilar from Kazan. Yeah. Who is a visual storyteller first. And the ideas come second. He's, he's got to get the idea out there. For, he's got to get the idea out there, but the only way he can do it is if he's a master filmmaker the way he is. Yeah. Spike Lee's the same. Yeah. Bamboozled is a film that I would watch with this as a double bill. I would I would do that immediately. Now, you're going to be sitting down for four and a half hours. Yeah. Because Bamboozled's longer. Yeah. Uh, and it, uh, but I think it would be an important double feature to catch you up on how these ideas are perceived. And... Ideas of dark satire by way of social commentary are prevalent in other areas. Yeah. Obviously, Jordan Peele's done his version of that with Get Out. Yeah. Obviously, Emerald Fennell, who just won an Oscar, did that version of it with Promising Young Women. And I, my question before we wrap this all up really is like, 
it's not how does the film hold up today because we already answered that throughout the episode. Here's the question I have. Does anybody want to keep listening anymore? Yeah. I think that it's very, very strange that the last four years and what has happened has also coincided with this weird division in cinema between blockbuster fair and art fair. And there are times when the two mesh together quite well. Yeah. But then they fail to find an audience. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because they already suspect that they're being pandered to or whatnot. I'm wondering if the, the ways that Kazan was able to communicate his message and then Spike Lee was able to communicate his message. I wonder if the problem is, is that there are sometimes when the old techniques just don't work anymore. Yeah. And you have to find a new way to do it. And I'm talking about filmmaking, not politics. I'm talking about like how you tell these kind of stories. Yeah. I think people like Emerald Fennel have done it correctly where they're treading a very interesting line. Yeah. Uh, intelligently and with one of the best scripts of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I, I wish I had seen it before my top 10. Uh, and uh, uh, I would encourage people like when you're watching these films, like, you don't even ha- you don't have to apply today's ethos to it. Mm-hmm. Look at it as a story about the basic concept of what happens when one person has too much power. And if you think that Citizen Kane is boring, this one's I will say objectively ten times more exciting. It's also ten times scarier. Mm-hmm. I love Citizen Kane. I think it's like a wonderfully told tale of warning. Yeah. This one's, this one's scarier. This one's darker. Yeah. Um, Henry, what are you, do you have any final thoughts on facing the crowd for the people? Uh, no, I think you brought up a lot of really good points. Uh, kind of talking about the context of this film and the film outside of the context, and how uh, it really is at the end of the day a timeless film because I think it's about more than the politics of it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think I just I think that that's how I want to end it is that to view it as view it for what it is. Yeah. Don't view it for what you want to bring to it, but view it for what it's trying to be. And so watching it as a piece of art about one man's spiral out of control at the glitz and the glamour of what fame does to somebody mm-hmm. and how one works with a medium that spreads a message to people. Yeah. Simple ideas, simple tropes that communicate. You can bring what you want to. I would say you can bring what you want to bring to it. But before you do that, watch it unfold as a whole. Yeah. And one thing I will say, realizing it in regards to the modern comparisons is, I'll be as vague as I can. Mm-hmm. The difference between making a movie like this today versus making it then is that unfortunately the monsters have become so complex that in order to tell it correctly, you'd have to remove empathy. Yeah entirely yeah and that's why you can't remake a movie like this as it exists yeah with somebody like andy griffith in the role yeah bamboozled was the natural evolution for that yeah let's take the concept apply a different idea to it but tell the same story about that rise that fall um by the way Let's leave it on a happy note, can't we? There we go. Andy Griffith, who arguably gives the performance of a lifetime, 
does no time for sergeants <laughs> the next year <laughs> a little bit more funny i've got a copy of it yeah. now. It's, it's wonderful fun. it's funny yeah. and he ends up getting the role of a justice of the peace and the editor of a local newspaper in the episode of uh in episodes of make room for daddy and he also appears as a county sheriff mm. so he's a county sheriff justice of the peace and the editor of a local newspaper in a, in a one single episode of make room for daddy with danny thomas and the uh this episode was the backdoor pilot for the andy griffith show both of these shows were produced by sheldon leonard mm a man who started on the Jack Benny program as a racetrack tout who sold tips on anything but horses because hmm. it's funny hmm. and then ended up cr- helping create the Dick Van Dyke show. So Ryan, Jack Benny is the reason you have your favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> but he's also the reason you have Andy Griffith. He plays Shan- Sheriff Andy Taylor in the Andy Griffith show for CBS Network from 1960 until 1968. Leaves behind a legacy of Hometown America, not too dissimilar from Pickett. Not too dissimilar from what Pickett's supposed to be. Yeah. Featuring, amongst other people, uh, uh, Don Knotts and little Ronnie Howard, who, as we said before, was scared shitless about seeing the crowd and going like, that's my that's my TV dad. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he would end up going to play uh, 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 the lawyer Matlock, Renegade lawyer Matlock, who's like a, you've got a folksy attitude about it. Uh, played Matlock from '86 to '95. He did other roles on television for things like Playhouse '90. Guest starred on Gomer Pyle, uh, which was the spinoff of the Andy Griffith Show, starring Jim Neighbors, um, the late Jim Neighbors. He passed not too long ago. He was in other films like The Strangers in Seven A, Go Ask Alice, Winter Kill, Pray for the Wildcats. Uh, he was also in Washington Behind Closed Doors, uh, where he played um, a president loosely based on Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, one of his final films is a movie that I love. It's a movie called Waitress. Mm-hmm. Plays a man who likes to come into the uh, into the diner every day, hang out with Carrie Russell, and eat pie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he led uh, quite of a hell of a legacy. And it's funny is is that he's ten times more progressive than you would think. Yeah. Andy, we may not get to talk about you that much on this show. So, you know, just another testament to your ability as an actor. So Henry, thank you for coming down to talk about facing the crowd. It's always a pleasure. Well, we got to fly you back to New York for your own television show, the Henry Jarvis show. Well, of course. Yeah. Where, where I've, I'm, I've told you're going to support the presidency of Paddington. Well, of course. The, the the cabinet position. We need to pass a few laws to allow bears to run for president. <laughs> I don't but, think we um, need to. I think we're already fine. <laughs> well, you're right. Paddington, I mean, though. Paddington would make a great president. I think so. Yeah. But when you're not supporting uh, Paddington for life president, uh, we want you back yeah. at whatever point we can. Of course. I think you need uh, you and I need to sit down possibly at some point. doesn't have to be right away, but... We need to see the other side of Mr. Gandy Griffith. Oh, well, of course. And I'm thinking about it. There's no time like no time for sergeants. Of course. Would you be willing to go down a weird experiment? Yeah. <laughs> could do, we could do a weird experiment. That could be fun. I'll get you a copy of the movie. All right. <laughs> it's goofy. Yeah. We, we might end up talking about how goofy the movie is, but yeah. he's good in it. it yeah. It's 
it's based on a Broadway play. Yeah, it'll be fun. It'll it'll be be fun. Yeah, it'll be fun. Um, But that's going to be it for the Ballyhoo itself. You can find out more about us at uh, Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review or BallyhooReviewPodcast.com. You can find us more on the social media tags at the back end of the episode. Uh, There's only a couple more episodes coming up um, before there's going to be kind of a break from me recording. So you may not hear some announcements down the line. But um, next episode will be... I believe we're getting a return visit from Mr. Kev Moore Ooh. to finally talk about some Val Luton, Ooh, be fun. who, by the way, he has a podcast out by this point called House of Hammer. Oh, wow. Where he is talking with Adam Roach, Smokey, and Ben Taylorson, uh, all from the respective podcasts of Secret History of Hollywood and Rated H and All the Best Lines. And you can join those four as they dissect the Hammer Horror series. Um, and... Uh, Laura Leibowitz will be back with us to talk about Andalusian Dog. And there might be a little bit of a month-long break Ooh. before I bring you into the world of John Houston with the Gambler's Creed. Ooh. Yeah. But until all of that, and until next time, folks. <laughs> well, if I'd only left him in that jail and picket. Marsha, stop it. You were taken in just like we were all taken in. We get wise to him. That's our strength. We get wise to him. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Pod and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. <laughs>